Hey everybody, this is Rafe Kelsch, and this is episode 38 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone's having a good week out there. I know things continue on, the fight continues on, despite your social media pages perhaps returning back to something that resembles normal, the world is still a scary place. Be vigilant, keep going, and keep finding that escapism when you need it. Uh, escapism was, of course, the big topic of last week's movie when we looked at Sharknado, and so that impacted our Friday inquiry where we turned to social media and asked you your thoughts on a question inspired by the movie. And since Sharknado was kind of a stupid but fun movie, that was the Friday Inquiry this past week, I asked, what's your favorite dumb but fun movie? And over on Twitter, where we can be found at Have Not Seen This, Chris Talent responded with The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, one of the dumbest movies I've ever seen, but I honestly never tire of watching it. And then over on Facebook, where we can be found at Have Not Seen This Podcast, got a lot of responses with some new faces in there as well. So welcome to those of you new to the show. Uh, Stuart Williams said, PCU, great cast that went on to do a lot. Just a fun movie. Luke Kunka said, off the top of my head, I'm going to shout out Will Ferrell's Land of the Lost. It's not anywhere close to a good movie, but the comedic beats are mostly hits, and it's a fun adventure. Adam Thomas said, Zombies. It's amazing. And if you listened to last week's episode, you know Zombies came up in the algorithm's recommendations, so I found that really hilarious that that's the movie that he suggested, or that he said for his uh, fun, dumb but fun movie. Price Ash said, The Fast Franchise. Uh, can't argue about the Fast and Furious movies being dumb, but they certainly are fun. James Rodriguez said, shoot em up. Jeff Clark said, killer clowns from outer space, I think, falls into this category. I would absolutely agree with that. Chris Eklund said, zombie strippers. Dion Nichols said, Flash Gordon, which I have to laugh at because that's been a potential film for this show in the past. Christy Telsch said, Weekend at Bernie's, horrible movie, watched it recently for old time's sake, laughed like hell at all the quotes that my sister and I still use, but the movie was painful. Gabriel Millique said, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, which I have to admit I haven't seen, and that's been on my list for a while. I need to get off my butt and watch that one. Uh, Amanda Branch said, The Blood of Heroes. Jason Phillips said, The Toxic Avenger. And Camille Remy said, Swamp Thing. So lots of good movies in there, or I guess not good movies, but dumb but fun movies, some of which I have to admit I've seen and enjoy, and some of which I have to admit I have not seen, so those will go on my list of happy have not seen this movies. A little self-promotion here. If you've been listening for a while, you know that one of my favorite episodes, just the most entertaining guests that I've had so far was Emily Slade from Why This Film. She talked with me about Labyrinth a couple of episodes ago and had me laughing harder than I've laughed in any of these conversations. Just absolutely loved talking film with Emily. And she invited me to come on her podcast, which is called Why This Film. And we talked about war games and that episode went out this week. So I highly recommend you look up that episode of why this film podcast uh, where Emily and I talk about war games and how it 
made me feel, you know, looking back at it through nostalgia, but also some relevance that it has in our current times. Uh, if you have not seen War Games, totally recommend it. Great flick, but also a great conversation. I love talking about movies with Emily, and I hope to get the chance to do some more of that in the future. So check that out. This week, we're turning our eyes to something a little more serious with 1984's Blood Simple, which, if you don't know the movie, it's the Coen Brothers' first film. So before they went on to do things like Fargo or The Big Lebowski, they started with this absolutely brilliant noir mystery but it's not really a mystery because you know all the pieces. It's, it's just fun watching the different characters kind of putting things together. This is a special episode to me, not only because it's our first Coen Brothers movie, but also because my guest is Chris Eklund. And Chris is probably my oldest friend that I'm going to be able to get on the podcast. I have one other friend that I'd kind of hoped to get on, but uh, has gone MIA for a while. Uh, Chris and I met when I was... Uh, geez, 16, I think. Uh, he moved into my area and we ended up going to school together and forming a really good friendship that lasted us through high school and beyond. Uh, and we haven't been in touch as much as one might like, but he graciously agreed to come on the podcast quite a while ago. And then it just took some time figuring out which movie he wanted to bring on the show because he is a wealth of movie knowledge. Uh, as I do say in the episode, I credit him with introducing me to a lot of films that I hadn't been exposed to through my family. And we joke about it through um, him ripping off the plots. He would, he and I played D&D &D and other role-playing games together, and he would rip off the plots of movies that he knew I hadn't seen and use those as the foundation for adventures that he'd run me through when we would just kind of do one-on-one -on -one stuff. Because we lived so close together, we could do one one-on-one -on -one D D stuff all the time or, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Marvel superheroes, all kinds of different games that we played. And he would rip off these plots and I wouldn't even know it because I hadn't seen the movie. And then somewhere down the line, I don't know if he'd make a mistake or he'd just finally kind of give in and he'd show me the movie and I'd watch it and be like, you son of a bitch, you stole that. You this awesome adventure and you just stole it. So uh, a great history with Chris and I, I love getting the chance to catch back up with him and have him on the podcast. And I love the fact that he picked Blood Simple, which is not a movie he introduced me to, but it could have been. It's right aligned with other movies that he did introduce me to. And so here we go. Uh, great conversation about a fantastic movie. I highly recommend you check the movie and the episode out. Here we go with 1984's Blood Simple. So how you been, man? Doing okay, yourself? Just surviving. I mean, it's been like a decade since we talked. Yeah, yeah, it has. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're doing well with all this, uh, you know, with the craziness going on right now. Yeah, I'm making my way through it. I'm uh, uh, looking at making some changes in my life to try and because of because of this. But uh, right, that's right. Yeah, I think everybody is. To be really honest, I mean, I know we are. There's certain things that uh, you know we. We're not doing any more and things that we've decided, hey, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's crazy times. I mean, it's I, I I told my son, you know, that every generation has some event that will be history for them. 
yeah. you know, that I remember being young and seeing the Challenger explosion. And I remember being older and seeing the, the 9-11 incident. And that this is going to be that defining thing for his generation. It probably won't be the last one, but it'll be a key one. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's just so weird too, you know, plagues and those sort of things. This seems so, uh, you know, 1400s or 1800s and, uh, yeah, I didn't think I'd see one in my lifetime. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a little, a little surreal. So you still, uh, do you still game? Oh yeah. Yeah. From time to time, not, not anywhere near what, uh, used to, but, uh, we always still get together occasionally. The, uh, the COVID kind of brought that screeching to a halt. So <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> yeah, the, the guy we usually meet with was just like, yeah, no, guess what? Uh, we're not doing this. So that, that ended that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it has that impact. <laughs> unfortunately, I, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So I, I don't think that counts as going out for essentials. <laughs> no. And that's, yeah, I, I haven't gamed. Jeez, I don't think I found a group after I, I stopped gaming with you guys. So I haven't, I mean, it's been ages since I've gamed, but my girlfriend has a group and oh. obviously, obviously they're not meeting. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you know, a lot of people are doing the, uh, the VR gaming and the, uh, the online gaming. I just haven't, I haven't figured out how to do all that yet. So uh, I'm still doing tabletop. <laughs> yeah. In theory, uh, an older friend of mine is uh, putting together a online group, but it's been since I would say mid March that it's been a work in progress and nothing has happened. So I'm, I have kind of stopped holding my breath that that's actually going to come to fruition. Yeah. We, we had some crazy ideas to try something on discord, but it, it never worked out. So it is what it is. We'll, we'll just get back together when this is all over. And you know, again, you're always welcome. So no, thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, yeah, absolutely. We, Interestingly, my my friend who's putting this together is now living in Lynchburg, and he and I met up a couple of months ago uh, at a con. So that tells you pre-COVID. Um, and oh, yeah. uh, I, I told him, you know, that it's a long drive, but I've made it for gaming before, so it wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we we were lucky. We got that Galaxy Con in like a couple of weeks before this all went nuts. So. Uh, yeah, you know. I think this was the same weekend as that, actually, because this was the, the con here in Roanoke. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, is it the, was it, uh, what's the one in Roanoke? Mysticon, Mysticon, okay. All right, so, you know, it's been a while since we've talked. I, I'm going to guess your movie interests haven't changed much in that time. So what are the best movies you've seen recently? recently um boy uh yeah because we've we've been watching a lot of tv shows uh we've been doing the netflix thing we've been watching uh a lot of stuff there um we went in tiger king i reserve the right to strangle you through the microphone no not tiger king i watched about 20 minutes of tiger king and went "Uh, (laughs) Uh, we, we did watch dracula we liked that uh uh we watched uh the irishman that was really good um, Knives Out was really good, surprisingly good. Oh, it was great. Yeah, yeah, fantastic film. I, I, uh, I was actually really kind of stunned because I went into that going, I don't know. Sometimes they throw these big ensemble films together nowadays and it's just a mess, but that one was fun. I really yeah. enjoyed that. 
Yeah, uh, I'm really glad that Ryan Johnson wants to do more with that character and that Daniel Craig is on board for it because I don't want a sequel to Knives Out, but I want to see that character on another story. Yes, yes, that's that would be awesome. Um, and uh, and controversial statement, uh, Ryan Johnson should just keep making movies like Knives Out. <laughs> <laughs> Stay out of Star Wars, please, please. So you fall on that side of things. I do, I do. Uh, I you know the last one wasn't wasn't so bad but i think they tried really hard to like please everybody uh if you if you liked last jedi if you didn't like last jedi uh i think they were like eh, we're gonna give everybody a little something but I, I i was not a last jedi fan no gotcha okay all right so i i credit you uh, i don't think we've ever had this conversation but i credit you oh. with introducing me to a lot of different movies when we were younger. Um, I, I mean, I considered myself to be a movie person even as a teenager, but when you and I met and started hanging out, the amount of different movies that you introduced me to, whether it was through the movie or through stealing the plot of the movie for a gaming <laughs> session, uh, <laughs> was, was astounding. So this is kind of a hard question to ask you. I'm sure you have an answer for it, but, the, but the podcast right. is have not seen this. So what are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you have not seen that people give you a hard time about? Oh, boy. Um, I, I, I know I said online, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a big one. Uh, yeah. Okay. It, 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 every once in a while, I'll see it on a TCM and I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to see that. And then for some reason, it just doesn't happen. So, so that's probably the, the like grail of of one that I haven't seen that uh, that everybody's like oh they get they get that same kind of stunned look like oh you you've never seen that and <laughs> uh, yeah yeah especially at work they're like well you like all those old classics why do you what's wrong with that one nothing's wrong with it I just uh, I just haven't gotten around to watching it yet does that make any sense yeah um, and, and and see like I I knew like the popular answer to this question over the last few episodes are movies I knew you'd seen. So, like, yeah. the amount of people who've said Apocalypse Now. Oh, or, no. Yeah. Or, or the Godfather movies, which yeah. I know you've seen. <laughs> many, many times. No, the ones I've seen, like, uh, uh, they're just ones that they, they either don't run very often or I've just not been exposed to. Um, a lot of Chaplin. I haven't seen a lot of Chaplin, and it's always been on my list to go back and, uh, you know, uh, check out some of the old classic Chaplin movies. Uh, what's another one that uh, 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 a lot of uh, Woody Allen, like Annie Hall, I've never seen it. Oh, really? I have not. Huh, I got you beat in one. Well, I got you beat in two because I've seen Mr. Smith too. So, <laughs> no, two, two. Yeah, there, there's there's a few uh, there's a few out there that uh, every once in a while, even uh, you know, guys at work who know they come to me with all the movie questions are like, oh, what do you mean you haven't seen that? So. It happens, um, but I, I really credit my parents with a lot of that because, I mean, I wouldn't have known any of these movies if it wasn't for them, and uh, they just exposed me to movie after movie after movie. Growing up, that was all it was, was like, hey, we're all going to get together and watch a movie every night, you know, for years, and it was always a different movie, and, uh, you know, some of them probably maybe they shouldn't have shown me when I was that young, like Jaws. <laughs> no, that hasn't left you with a lifelong trauma yeah, exactly that's not i don't have a phobia of sharks that's really obvious 
uh, you know, The Shining, maybe that wasn't the best year to show me The Shining, you know, I was like, uh, but, uh, they, they always instilled with me, you know, everything is special effects and, and, uh, it's all make believe. And, and they taught me to appreciate the cinematography and the lighting and, uh, the score, especially with a lot of films. So, uh, any, anything you're giving me credit for, I'm going to, I'm going to hand it right back over to my folks. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I remember you matched me in that area of just being obsessed with movie soundtracks when we were younger. That, you know, that's that tended to be what I listened to. And then again, you know, you and I met and that's what you were listening to, too. So it was another thing for us to kind of connect over movie soundtracks. Yeah. And I'll, and this isn't a movie soundtrack necessarily, but you still have me addicted to Art of Noise. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love Art of Noise. But, yeah, no, I've always I still uh, I still try to collect movie soundtracks. Obviously, I do it mostly digital now and I have them on my you know, computer to listen to. But, uh, yeah, that, that's never really uh, gone away. I mean, some of those composers, uh, some of the work just sticks with you, and uh, it, it's, it's sometimes it's the best thing in the film. <laughs> True. Yeah, that was, you know, and I've I've made the comment on here before about Gladiator winning the Oscar the year that it won, and it, it's to me, it's not a great movie. It's a good movie. Didn't deserve the Oscar. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not a great movie. But damn, is it a great score? Yeah, I'll agree with you. It is uh, that one Zimmer, right? That's a Hans Zimmer. I believe so. Yeah. I believe so, but uh, no, I, I agree with you that it was an okay film. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is solid, which is funny because I didn't. When I left the film, my first thought was I need to see something else that Phoenix is in because I don't know if I hated him or if I hated the character. Yeah, the character. Right. Yeah, and then I saw him in something else and was like, okay, yeah, it's the character that I hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he did a really good job playing a a psychotic Roman emperor. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, kudos to that. But uh, yeah, that, the Hans Zimmer's uh, uh, everything he does is pretty much amazing. So Inception, uh, that's another oh, yeah. track. Obviously, the Dark Knight movies. Yeah, he's amazing. Well, let's yeah. turn our focus to Carter Burwell instead. <laughs> he's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, let's talk talk about this week's movie, which is Blood Simple from 1984, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. This is the first Cohen Brothers movie. Uh, starring John Getz, Francis McDormand, Dan Hedaya, M. Emmett Walsh, and Sam Art Williams. What I know about is Texas. Down here, you're on your own. Having a good time? Hey, what's it? Your husband. I got a job for you. It's not strictly legal. You want me to kill him? Ray, let's get out of here. What do you want to do? What do you want to It's funny, it's if it's not you she's sleeping with, it's someone else. What's really going to be funny is when she gives you that look and says, I don't know what you're talking about. 
he looks stupid now. And I, I think I told you when you, because you and I had go, been going back and forth about getting you on the show for a while, and then just out of the blue, you finally picked this one. And ironically, the day that you picked it, I had that morning been considering that there hadn't been any Coen Brother movies picked for the podcast yet. So your timing yeah. was just like perfect. Awesome. I, I like it when everything comes together. <laughs> Which is not what this movie is about. <laughs> no, nothing comes together right in this movie. <laughs> So how do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? Because I, I know a lot of people out there who know the Coen brothers, but they know them through, you know, the Big Lebowski or Fargo or, or those kinds of things, you know, True Grit. Blood Simple yeah. seems to be one of their overlooked movies, especially because it was their first one. So how do you describe this? How do you sell this to someone who hasn't seen it? Uh, the way that I've described this one is always it's a modern film noir. It is like a, it's got a plot that's like a cup of noodles. Once you start trailing down one road, it splits off into three other roads. Um, and it, and the pacing on it is incredibly tense. Uh, there's really, like you said, there's really only like four or five characters in the whole movie. And, uh, if you like a good suspense film, if you like something that's just short and sweet and wicked, I mean, this is, this is right up there with some of the best film noir out there. In my opinion. No, I totally agree with you. Um, so for those who don't know the movie, the, the basic plot is uh, Frances McDormand plays a character who is wanting to leave her husband. And her husband, played by Dan Hedaya, has hired a private detective, played by M. Emmett Walsh, to keep tabs on his wife. And through a series of unexpected events... The husband ends up dead and the boyfriend is trying to cover it up because he thinks Francis McDormand's character was responsible. And, and, and that's about the best plot synopsis I can give. <laughs> oh, that's giving away the entire film. Yeah, yeah, that's that's solid, though. That was good. It's, it's Francis McDormand's first film, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, and of course, I want to say that. And of course, she goes on to marry one of the Coens. So it's, you know, kind of where they met as well. Oh, I, I did not know that. Yeah, she was uh, she was originally not uh, Holly Hunter was up for the role and felt like she blew the audition. And Frances McDormand was her roommate at the time. So she recommended Frances go audition for it. Hunter ends up providing the voice on the phone later on in the film. But, right. You know, didn't obviously get the lead role. But yeah, so this yeah. is yeah, this is Frances McDormand's yeah. film debut. And uh, and she gave her, they gave Holly Hunter Raising Arizona. So. Yes, you can't feel too bad for her. Yeah, um, but yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know she was married to one of them. I've I've learned something today. Oh yeah, yeah I did not know that. Oh yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. So that's is that a common knowledge thing that I just blew? <laughs> I thought so, but I I, I could be wrong. Um, uh, I thought it was, but then again, I mean that's part of why she. Well. I was going to say that's part of why she is, you know, in all of their films. But the truth is she's in all of their films just because she's, uh, you know, talented. But, yeah, she's she's married to Joel Cohen since uh, oh. April 84. Wow. Wow. OK. I. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> she did much better in her opening debut than Kate Capshaw. <laughs> all right. So. You know, you've got a huge film experience, as I said. So why out of all of the movies is this the one you picked for the, for our conversation? Uh, because there's so many people that I, you know, talk to in uh, at work or out at parties and talking to groups that don't even know this movie exists. I think they think that the Coens just did Fargo 
And that was like their, their big, you know, that was their big film. That was what did it. And I always kind of look stunned because I'm like, no, no, no. Their first film was Blood Simple. And they're like, Blood Simple, what is that? And I'm like, it's one of their greatest films, in my opinion. It's fantastic. And, you know, without it, they that might not have opened up the door to all the other amazing Coen Brothers films that we've got. So, uh, yeah, just the sheer number of people that don't know this movie exists. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a hot take or, or a cold take or what, but I, I can't think of a more perfect product from first-time directors than this. I mean, this movie is pretty damn close to perfect yeah. in the way that it's laid out, the way that it's shot. Um, the way that they build tension, uh, it, it's just, it's a phenomenal first, it's a phenomenal movie, period. But for it to be a first movie from a pair of filmmakers is amazing. Everything clicks. The, the, the you know, the soundtrack is amazing. They got, uh, you know, relatively unknown actors and, and everything works. It's, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think of something similar, maybe like Reservoir Dogs, maybe yeah. something where it's like their first film out was just a home run so yeah I, I would agree with that absolutely so what is your history with this one is this one your parents introduced you to or something you discovered yeah. later on no 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 this is one that they were like hey you like because at the time i was big into mysteries and sherlock holmes and uh you know the the maltese falcon all that kind of stuff and they were like hey you want to see one that's really really good there's this blood simple film and and i want to say I saw it like not soon after its release, like maybe 85, 86. So I was, you know, young at the time, probably again, shouldn't have seen something like this, but, <laughs> uh, but it just stuck with me. I was like, what a, you know, the visuals, the, the plot, everything was just fantastic. Uh, and it's one that as soon as I, you know, got out on my own, I had to track a copy down of. So, yeah, the, the, the music, you know, I, I kind of use that as our lead in, but the, the piano medley is the foundation of the, the score is is so hauntingly beautiful. Like I, I I found myself when I finished watching this yesterday, I left the, the Blu-ray in because the menu music was part of the score and it was just nice to listen to that play over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they do something in this that's very I mentioned Tarantino a minute ago. It's very hard for me to listen to uh, the four tops. It's the same old song without the <laughs> yeah. blood simple. Yeah, the two are are definitely connected. They they have such a, yeah great use of songs in this one that it just you know it just clicks. Yeah, absolutely. So critically, this film did really well. Great opening start. Uh, it sits at ninety four percent at Rotten Tomatoes. It sits at eighty one percent on Metacritic. You know, which came around a little later. So I guess that's people later to the party not appreciating it as much. Um, catch it up. Yeah, yeah. I brought in the big guns for our, our critical eye here. Uh, oh. On the positive side, I always try to use Roger Ebert, and his review of this is phenomenal. Sure. And I'll just go ahead and warn you on the negative side. I managed to find the full review by Pauline Kale. Oh no. <laughs> so okay all right all right so roger ebert says a lot has been written about the visual style of blood simple but i think the appeal of the movie is more elementary it keys into three common nightmares one you clean and clean but there's still blood all over the place two you know you have committed a murder but you are not sure how or why three huh. you know you have forgotten a small detail that will eventually get you into a lot of trouble blood simple mixes those fears and guilts into an incredibly complicated plot with amazingly gory consequences. 
It tells a story in which every individual detail seems to make sense and every individual choice seems logical, but the choices and details form a bewildering labyrinth in which there are times when even the murderers themselves don't know who they are. Wow, that's, uh, that is spot on accurate. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I very rarely disagree with Roger Ebert or, or did. So yeah, I, I, sounds good so far. Okay. All right. So nothing to say really about that one. I, yeah, I, I thought he captured it really well. He did. He did. But he talks about, you know, a lot has been written about the visual style and he then kind of moves past the visual style. All right. So here's Pauline Kale providing the negative review. Mm. <laughs> Just hold on. <laughs> Blood Simple has no sense of what we normally think of as reality and has no connections with experience. It's not a great exercise in style either. It derived from pop sources from movies such as Diabolique and Grubby Bee Pictures and hard-boiled steamy fiction such as that as James M. Kane. It's so derivative that it isn't a thriller. It's a crude, ghoulish comedy on thriller themes. The director, Joel Cohen, who wrote the screenplay with his brother Ethan, who was the producer, is inventive and amusing when it comes to highly composed camera setups or burying someone alive, but he doesn't seem to know what to do with the actors. They give their words too much deliberation and weight, and they always look primed for the camera, so they come across as amateurs. I disagree with, like, everything said just then. <laughs> like, every word is wrong. Uh, wow. Okay. That is a harsh review. Yeah. She, uh, she tended to I don't even know where to get. Yeah. I, I guess... I guess work our way backwards. Do you feel like the car- the actors come across as amateurs that they give their words too much deliberation and weight? I, I don't think they come across as amateurs so much as they come across as like regular people, which is, I guess what the idea going into it is, is uh, they don't commit the perfect murders at all. They they're sloppy They're It's like watching a bad episode of forensics files with these people. Uh, <laughs> they make all these horrible mistakes they say the wrong things. They do the wrong things. Uh, but I guess some of that is the appeal to me uh, over something like Diabolique, where everything does feel a little too scripted. I, and I love that movie, but it all seems like it ties up a little too nicely. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Uh, and this one, it just feels like you don't know what they're going to do because they don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. I, see, I, and I... I disagree with her. You know, there, there's a, a key scene after Ray, the, the boyfriend here, has he, he's found the dead body of the husband. And we'll, I guess we'll get into I, I don't want to go through the movie narratively. So we're going to jump around. But he finds the dead body and he decides to take care of it because he thinks Abby has murdered this character. Right. And then after this rough night of dealing with the body, he comes home and he has this conversation with Abby where it's almost two different conversations going on because neither one of them knows what the other one is talking about. Right, right. Yeah, she, she, he thinks she's a murderer, and she's just asking him, like, did you go get in a fight? Right. There's this disconnect there, but it's it, I, I thought it was incredibly well done because a lot of the times, you know, I, I don't know how I would communicate something like that. So... The, the fact that, you know, John Getz, uh, you know, looks totally confused and he's chuckling at one point, just lighting a cigarette and just keeps saying, you know, it's going to be all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's totally believable to me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that's to me, that's the beauty. I didn't feel like the characters were being deliberate in what they were saying or the actors were being deliberate in what they were saying. I felt like they were playing two different scenes because right. that's what their characters would have been doing. 
because after all of that, he's not going to come home and say, all right, so I know you killed him and all that. He's still in a, he's in shock. Well, the whole evening for him is just not a good evening. It's a great way to ruin a Sunday. <laughs> you know, there's, there's not a line of dialogue in that scene with him finding the body and, you know, everything that comes from that. But again, he, he cleans that crime scene up in the most ridiculous way possible. And it's, it's horribly believable. It's like, what have I got on me? I've got a windbreaker. Well, I guess I'm going to mop up blood with this windbreaker. Right, and, and that feels like one of those moments where the audience nowadays would be like, oh, well, he's obviously never seen an episode of, you know, as you said, Forensic Files, using your reference there. Um, yeah. but, that, that, but that feels logical of what a character in that situation would do. We, we're not going to stop and be like, oh, well, how would they handle this on Forensic File? We're going to, you know, oh, I've got to clean this up so my girlfriend doesn't get in trouble. Yeah, what's yeah. the first thing? And, and what I love about the detail you just mentioned, the windbreaker, is that in his stunned scene later on with Abby, he asked that question. Oh, yeah. Where's my windbreaker? Where's my windbreaker? Not thinking yeah. that he cleaned up blood with it and threw it in an incinerator. Yeah, yeah. He's, no, he's, he's completely in shock. Uh, and I, I, I guess to this, you know, to, to Pauline, it seemed amateurish, but to me, uh, it, it's, it seems highly believable. Yeah, no. And let's, I guess let's talk about the disposing of the body scene oh, because he, oh he, he finds the body, as you said, he, he cleans up the blood with his windbreaker and then finally gets smart and gets a towel and is trying to do that. He drags the body out to his car. He drives past the incinerator, but instead of like putting the body in the incinerator, he puts just his windbreaker and the towel in there. He drives out to a field, realizes that the the character's not dead. Yeah. Has to contend with that, and then and buries him alive. That's that's one of my favorite moments when he pulls off the road and just starts running. And he runs what, about fifty feet and then turns around and he's like he looks like I have no idea what to do now. Right. Because what are you going to do? You have a dead body in the back seat that's not dead. But if you take him to the hospital or the police, you're incriminated in trying to do something, even though you technically didn't do anything. And that and you've just you've sailed your girlfriend up the river. Or at least it hit my Yeah. And that that scene felt so reminiscent of what the Coen brothers would do later on in Fargo and in Burn After Reading, where you have a guy in a situation that he just doesn't understand and he's trying to do the best that he can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're really solid at that. Uh, even though country for old men, you know, what uh, Josh Brolin's character is just, he's completely outmatched. Yeah. Uh, he's just kind of going with the motions in that one. Like, okay, uh, now what do I do? Now what do I do? Uh, and, and that's totally what John gets has got that whole, okay, I don't know what I'm doing now. It even reminded me, taking it beyond the Coens, it even reminds me of those first couple episodes of Breaking Bad, where Walt and Jesse are having to take care of bodies, or... Uh, the bathtub scene, is that where you're... <laughs> the, the bathtub scene, or any of the basement scenes with the other guy who, you know, they've got to kill. And again, normal guy in a situation that he doesn't know what to do, because if yeah. you let him free, you're dead, but if you don't let him free, he's going to die, or you're going to have to kill him, and it's like... It, it felt exactly the same. It felt like that was building on the foundation of what the Coen brothers did here. Yeah, no, I absolutely, I hadn't thought of the Breaking Bad, but that's that's absolutely perfect. And another thing you said a minute ago, he does. I like the idea that he stares at that incinerator after he cleans up. You can see him sitting there watching it, 
And then he gets in his car and you're like, okay, he's going to go burn the body. But he just throws the coat in. And it's yeah. like, okay, wh- what are you doing? <laughs> and again, it's because we can armchair quarterback as much as we want from the safety of our chair, but we're not in the situation. And this is a man in shock. And I think they, they convey that excellently throughout, you know, essentially the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and John Getz, I think, is a criminally uh, ignored actor, to be really honest. Because he really, uh, he really didn't do much after this, did he? No, I mean, he has a pretty busy filmography. I looked him up because I was like, I know I've seen that face, and all I really knew him from was this. I mean, he's he's I, done, he's yeah, he stayed working, but he's, you know, what what's the term, working actor? Yeah, yeah. Well, the only two big movies I could think of with him in it was this and, the, and Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah. Well, he's uh, done a lot of TV. He's done uh, Bosch, which was a streaming series on Amazon. Uh, okay. Couple episodes of Better Call Saul. Speaking of uh, Breaking Bad, <laughs> there's something I haven't seen. Is Better Call Saul? So oh, uh, it's really John good. Gets, I've heard, but now you know you're telling me like John Getz is on it, and I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna well, have to he, net- <laughs> just, just a couple of episodes of it, though. He's not a key part, but well, still, that you know, he's great. He, he really yeah. is, especially in this. I mean, he he easily has a hundred, hundred and fifty credits to his name if you look at his filmography. I mean, he's definitely stayed working. He just hasn't been a leading man. Okay, all right. So this was really his big leading man kind of role, then I guess. Yeah, yeah, pretty okay. much. All right. Well, let's change gears uh, so we make sure we get another conversation in here, um, <laughs> and and that is the what I think is the best performance of the film. You're going to say M. M. Emmett Walsh. Absolutely. Hands down, M. Emmett Walsh. Because uh, he's so likable. He's so likable, but he's so likable, but at the same time, he's such a scuzz. I don't know that I would use the term likable. <laughs> he's, he's friendly. He's he's smiling. He's always laughing. Uh, I mean, you know, he's, you know, he's scum, but I don't know. He had like a kind of a personable kind of charm to him, a Texas charm to him, I guess, maybe. Well, he does have he has the opening lines of the movie, which I, I yeah. for some reason in the past few months, that's something I've been taking note of is where are the opening lines of the movie coming from? And he has that monologue about how, you know, the world is full of complain complainers. In fact, nothing comes with a guarantee. Um, yeah. But the point that I think you really get any glimpse into his characterization is he hands the pictures he's taken of Abby and Ray together to her husband. And just kind of says with a little chuckle, I know where you can get those framed. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow, you're an asshole. <laughs> it was. You know, it was just something funny about him. He's got that little, that little like, topless light in his car that he's playing with. And he's telling that story about the guy with, with two broken hands. And, you know, it could also be because just about every scene you see him with, he's with Dan Hedaya, who is yes. the most intense guy almost in moviedom in that film like every scene dan hedaya is in he just kind of looks like the scariest ex-husband you'd ever want to meet just stares a lot of times or whispers and yeah. I, I don't know M. Emmett walsh in every scene he's in is just kind of laughing or having a good time with him poking fun at him and uh you know i i, I mean they're both terrible people but <laughs> Yeah, and Dan Hedaya, just a, a quick side note, it really interests me because this is the kind of character I'm used to seeing him play. But then every yeah. once in a while you get a performance like he was the dad in Clueless, and I totally forgot that until a podcast I listened to was talking about Clueless a couple of weeks ago, and it was like, oh yeah, and he was a good guy in that. 
He was in the first Wives Club. <laughs> see, I've not seen that movie. Diane Keaton. Yeah, it, it's weird. Sometimes you'll see Dan Hedaya pop up in something and be like, oh, he's not really intense in this. Like, he's the bad guy in Commando. Yeah, now that I knew. <laughs> yeah, he's the bad guy in Commando. I think he's in Alien 4. Yes, the, the yeah. one that nobody likes to talk about. <laughs> I mean, I saw it. I, 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 it was a thing that I saw once, but yeah, no, it's it's not good, but Dan Hedaya is in it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, but you're right. I mean, he is really intense, and to be matched on screen, you're right. Most of his scenes are with M. Emmett Walsh, who we, we just had a movie on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. M. Emmett Walsh shows up in Fletch in one tiny little scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he does. But, I you know, that. I, I think he's best known, of course, for Blade Runner, but then this as well. I, You know what other movie he shows up in that he's, that he's really hilarious in is The Jerk? That movie came up earlier today, and I didn't even think about that. He's in The Jerk? He's the guy, you know, the the guy who runs the convenience store where where they're, they're trying to kill him and, uh, you know, oh, he hates these cans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And oh Emmett Walsh is in that. Yeah. It's been so long since I've seen The Jerk. Obviously, I need to revisit that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's amazing in this from his first moments to to, you know, his he gets the essentially the closing line of the film. And. Yes. He's see, I disagree about liking him. I, I like to hate him. I like I, I like what a scumbag he is. I don't particularly like him. I don't like him so much as he comes across as likable uh, in a film that's full of really intense people. He's the only one making jokes. He's the only one uh, laughing about stuff. You know, I don't, there's only four characters in the film and he's the worst of them. But he's also, I don't know, the friendliest. Yeah. OK, I can go with that. He definitely is. I mean, is, yeah, friendly. Clearly, in that one scene with Dan Hedaya, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know how much of this movie we want to give away. Oh, you can uh, go ahead. Yeah, in the scene where he just shoots Dan Hedaya, man, he goes from telling a joke to just cold, and he's waving his hat, blowing the, you know, the the gunpowder fumes out of his face, and then what's that line he's got? He's like, now who's stupid looking? Yeah, who looks stupid now? Yeah, yeah. Whoa, he got cold. <laughs> he yeah. went from jokes and talking about fishing to just. No, I trust you. Blam. And it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. But the, the irony of that, who looks stupid now, is he's saying that as he's making what is a, an essential blunder for his character, which yeah, is yeah. the yes. lighter. Yes. Yeah. You, you can see him make the mistakes. Uh, and it's, it's such an, it, again, it goes back to, uh, you know, you can see the wheels turn in that character when he makes that decision, like, oh, there's the safe. He's got to have a lot of money in that safe because he keeps talking about all the money he's got. I'm just going to do this. But then when it happens, it's still like, whoa, okay, all right, well. Yeah. well <laughs> and I, and I, I think it's, you know, we don't get an explanation as to why, because he's hired to kill Abby and Ray. Yeah. And we don't ever get an explanation as to why he chose specifically not to kill them, but then to come back and kill his client. I mean, the only thing that I ever figured watching that was he clearly, when he does go into the house at the very, uh, towards the beginning of the film, uh, when he takes those pictures, when he goes around, he clearly gets spooked, you know, creaking around the house with his cowboy boots on. And I think at that decision, he, you know, he made the decision, obviously, I'm just going to try to fool this other guy rather than try to do this. I guess it's easier to kill one guy sitting in his bar than it is to people sleeping in a bed i don't know well and i think part of it you know the, the only justification i can come up with is 
Ray and Abby are liked. You know, there yeah. we can assume, even though we don't really see much beyond the scope of this story, we can assume that they have friends beyond the scope of this story. Whereas yeah. Marty, maybe not so much. No, no, he's the scariest guy. You can tell because the people that he employs don't like him. The bar patrons, he's creepy with them. You know, he's scared. He's, you know, the, the, the bartender's having to make excuses for him. Uh, yeah, he's just a very unlikable character. Uh, and, and Dan Hidea plays him to the hilt as unlikable. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and while you're, you, since you mentioned it, we, we do need to take a moment to recognize Maurice, who is probably the worst character in the movie as far as just. Yeah. He, he, you feel bad for the guy because he's a nice guy who's just trying to do his thing. And I take it back. He's the friendliest guy in the film, not Emmett <laughs> uh, Walsh. <laughs> he, I mean, he has nothing to do with the story other than he's just on the outskirt edges because he knows these people. And yet, you know, his life is about to get all sorts of screwed up as well. And, and he is, honestly, he gets the crown for most clueless, uninformed guy in this film. And that <laughs> is a lofty mountain in this film to climb up to. Uh, <laughs> the scenes where he's in, he's talking to somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about, and he has no idea what he's talking about. Yes. It's very confusing. It's very, it's like, oh my god, uh, they don't know what you're saying. You think you know what you're saying is right, but ah, the guy's not off fishing. <laughs> Nobody well, I, stole the money. I didn't do it. <laughs> and I thought it was a really interesting choice to cast Sam Art Williams in that role, because there is nothing to that role that specifically says the character has to be black other than maybe his choice of music. Yeah. And, you know, casting a, a black man in that part is a really interesting dynamic because, one, when the detective first gives the pictures to Marty, the, the golden lining or the silver lining he's trying to give Marty is you thought he was a colored man. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then Maurice <laughs> is the one that essentially Marty is laying the, the foundation that Maurice stole the $10,000 that he's using to pay the detective. That's how he's covering his tracks with the money is yeah. he leaves a message on Maurice's machine saying this money is missing. You better come here and talk to me about it. Yeah. 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 No, uh, Maurice is, uh, yeah, he's definitely the most likable guy and he's definitely the most, uh, out of the loop on everything except for the fact that his boss is a jackass. He's got that part down to a science. <laughs> I mean, you know, we learn more about uh, Dan Hedaya, about Marty, through uh, through Maurice, almost than we do about, you know, through his through his wife. Uh, I love when he tells a joke where he's talking about how, you know, all these alcoholics came in here and wanted to know if they could get a discount. And I look over and Marty's thinking the idea through, like that's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the kind of guy this guy is. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, maybe I need to take it back about what a, a, a scum M.M. at Walsh's character is, because Marty really is the scum of the earth. <laughs> Marty is terrible. Uh, you know, even when even when uh, when Ray's got him out in the field and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, he thinks about hitting him with the shovel at first and he doesn't do it. And I'm like, oh, this guy's just so detestable that you're you're, you're not even thinking about taking him to the hospital now. You just want to. You just want to get rid of him. Oh, yeah. And he's doing nothing to, like, give you any, any, you know, validation to save him. What's the first thing he does? He pulls the gun out of his pocket. Right. <laughs> I mean, 
You, you wow. put the gun in his pocket. Now he's not dead. And the first thing he does, rather than calling out for help, is pull the gun on you. Yeah, absolutely. He can't talk, but you could at least gesticulate. You could, like, look like you're pleading. You could look sad. No, he goes right for that handgun. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> uh, you know, if his finger hadn't already been busted, man, he might have. that might have been a really interesting scene. Wow. tipsters this is melissa morgan i'm the host of just the tipsters true crime podcast because people are awful and they kill each other tipsters this is melissa morgan the host of just the tipsters true crime podcast have you ever wanted to kill anyone hey tipsters my name is melissa morgan and i'm the host of just the tipsters true crime podcast america's favorite true crime podcast you can find us on apple Podcast. i don't know where the you can find us how about that just can find us and listen and we're and you'll really like it is that okay just the tipsters with melissa morgan is actually available on itunes spotify iHeartRadio, and wherever you get your podcast subscribe rate review you'll be glad you did So the, the handgun is established in like the first non voiceover line of the movie. So the first, you know, as we said, the first line of the movie is narration by M. Emmett Walsh. But then it's really quickly established in that first brilliant scene, the, the car ride with Ray and Abby in it, that Marty gave her this pearl handled 38 for their first anniversary. Yeah. So you really have a Chekhov's gun situation set up with that gun that it is mentioned almost first thing in the film. And yeah. then the movie does keep coming back to it. You have another Chekhov's gun with, as I said, the lighter, you know, the first scene with Marty and the detective, he pulls yeah. out that lighter and there's, there's not enough focus on it to make you feel like it's important, but there's enough focus on it that when it's a big deal later on, you remember it. Yeah. Yeah. They, they just kind of flash to it for a scene. Like he lights his, uh, he lights a cigarette with it. He slaps it down hard. And then you're like, oh, okay, cool lighter. Yeah. Uh, oh. And then when you see it under the fish later on, you're like, oh, that's why they made a deal out of that. Yeah. So I, I just yeah. find it interesting that there's not one, but there's two Chekhov's guns here. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. I'm just, it, it's just, a, it's that good of a movie. They can do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. that opening, the, the visuals of that opening car ride, which was filmed in a garage, you know, using practical old school visual effects. Yeah, like, here's another light, here's the headlights of another car coming, yeah. Right, which is, you know, essentially like a flashlight. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it is so beautiful and setting the tone for the scene and, and, and setting the tone for the movie. Just throughout the whole film, the use of light and shadow is so glorious, but it all starts with that opening car ride scene, which yeah. I just absolutely love. And it's, it's single take, so it lets the actors, you know, control the flow of the action. It, it's just you know, as I said, this is a fantastic first film. This is a fantastic film, period. But for it to be a first film and for that to be the first scene of their first film is just really incredible what the Coen brothers do. And it's very noir. All the lighting in this is very noir. Another scene that I love with the lighting is when he goes to Marty's office and yeah, he doesn't know Marty's been shot. 
he takes a few steps into this really dark room and he kicks that gun and the gun yeah. goes off. He grabs hold of the side of the of uh, the table or the chair there and the lighting in that scene is just terrifying because you don't know. You don't know what he's going to find. You don't know what's happened. I mean, you know what's happened, but you don't know what, what he's looking at until a few minutes later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love the way that they, they reveal. I mean, w- what's funny is we've already seen that Marty's dead. We've already seen him get shot. But the way they reveal it to us through Ray is really an interesting approach as well. Yeah, because he just shows up looking for, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm going to go down there and get my money. Uh, I don't I don't care if he wants to start something. And instead, he goes into a dark room and kicks a handgun that goes off. One of the other scenes I noted uh, light and shadow in is when Abby is staying the night at his place, not their first night together in the motel, but staying at his place. And he he went and met with Marty and Marty kind of got in his head and said, you know, she'll fool around on you, too. And he comes back and says, you know, do you want the bed or the couch? Making it very obvious right from the start that Marty got in his head. Yeah, yeah, he did. And when they're in those separate rooms and the camera kind of cuts between her on the couch and him in the bed and Marty outside his bar and just the way the light and shadow captures all three of them is just beautiful. Well, and you've also hit on their fantastic dialogue as well. Uh, because half the problem, half their confusion later on stems from that one conversation he has with Marty, where Marty's like, she's going to get that voice and be like, I don't know what you're talking about, Ray. And then she says that to him the next 45 minutes into the movie. She says that when he's like, you know, he just thinks he's cleaned up a murder and, and she goes to her and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Ray. And he just kind of chuckles. And it's like, oh. Now this conversation is dead. Now they're not, now they're not going to go forward with this. Whereas, you know, in any other normal situation, they might be like, hey, this is what happened. He ended it there because Marty had put that in his head. Yeah. And, and he mentions that she'll do funny on you. And she, she uses that word several times. And that always seems to trigger something from Ray as well, where she says, you know, yeah. I ain't trying to be funny or I ain't doing something funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I, I think that scene early on, I think you hit the nail on the head there that. That scene with Marty gets in his head for the entire rest of the film. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's just to me, it going back to the, the negative review, I just disagree. I think the performances are all really superb and, and important in laying the foundation for each subsequent scene. I, I just I totally disagree with that Pauline Kale review. No, I, I, go figure. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean. I think I think she I I don't even know if she saw the same movie to be perfectly honest. If you read Roger Ebert's again and then read hers again, it seems like they went to see two different films. Yeah, and uh, you know the uh, the entire end of the movie is in shadow. Yes, and I was going to say why don't why before we end because we're we're running on an hour and we still got our little closing games here, but let's let's talk about the end of the movie. My Um, goodness, the. Ray coming to her apartment, which where in the time of this frame of this movie has she had time to get her own place? But it's not, you know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, and it's and it's not like she has a ton of stuff there. So it's it's easy to believe that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But his insistence on keeping the light off because he knows somebody's out there. Yeah. He's figured it out enough to where he knows it's not her. But he doesn't say anything. (laughs) He's just like, no, no, don't turn the lights off. Yeah, and it's it's this continued thing that like the second half of the movie continues to be scenes and conversation 
questions about not knowing. Like that's the key element of the film is not knowing. If if yeah. one of them had just sat down and said, "Here's what's going on," right. it would have been a very different movie. But that's not right. realistic. No, it's not. It's not. And and like you say, you know, uh, from from all the previous conversations and scenes, you know, he's not going to say anything, and she's going to stay completely clueless. Yeah. So. She stays completely clueless, leaves the light on, and that costs Ray his life. Oof, in a bad way, too. Yeah. Uh, which, the end of this movie is brutal. Yeah, which I had, I had one of the trivia pieces I read for this. She has that scene where Marty visits her in her apartment. And you're like, wait, Marty's dead and buried. Is he? How did yeah. on earth did he come back? And it's revealed to be a dream. It's a creepy scene, too. Yes, it, it is. And in that scene, apparently there's broken glass on the floor as kind of foreshadowing to what's going to happen to Ray. I, I've never caught it. I'd have to go back and watch. Huh? Yeah. Because of the first time I saw that, I was like, oh my God, did that guy really not die again? Yeah. Is he, I mean, did he somehow get out of that? And then when he, you know, obviously it's a dream. I was like, wow, that was, that's a creepy use of dream. Well, um, what's really and, interesting is everything he says in that dream sequence are Ray's lines of dialogue. Yes, yes, you left your weapon behind. Yeah. He's saying Ray's lines, but it's Marty as the ghost delivering them in her dream. Yeah, it's very surreal. So uh, anyway, Ray gets killed, and then you have this wonderful cat and mouse game between Abby and the detective. Yeah, and uh, boy, he gets hurt really bad. <laughs> uh, I have to point out the scene where he gets stabbed. Uh, I was I was showing that movie to a group of friends. Uh, I want to say you know, two or three years ago, and uh, the scene where she slams the windowsill on his hand and sticks a knife in it and twists it, everybody in the room let out a noise of some kind, whether it was a scream or, oh, and I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, oh, that's, oh, I'm going to be sick. That is horrible. It's it just looks rude. like the worst. Yeah, it's a worst, and he's trying to pull his hand back in, and I'm like, don't, no, don't do that. That's not good. You know, and it, it's always killed me, though, that he, he, he punches through that drywall, which I understand, uh, and he pulls a knife out. And if you watch the scene, he does not look at his hand. He just puts his hand immediately in his pocket. Yes. Like, well, he, he knows would you that, look at it? <laughs> that's, that's an, again, but that's another one of those, wow, that's a believable scene, which goes back to that horrible review where she's like, everybody looks amateurish. No, I would look at my hand. That's the first thing, you know, that they tell you, don't look at it, don't look at it. And this guy, he pulls that knife out, and then the, the hand goes right in the pocket. Yeah. And he even just, he puts his hat back on. Um, <laughs> Which apparently like, uh, okay. Walsh was opposed to doing, but was told to do it anyway. And they, Hat back on? Yeah, have you not heard that story? No, I haven't heard that story. Okay, so apparently <laughs> he didn't want to do it. He kept coming up with reasons why it was not in his character to do it. And uh, one of the Coens said, will you just do it as a favor to me? And he responded, I'm doing this whole movie as a favor to you. <laughs> oh, I, I love him putting the hat back on, though. Oh, wait, me too. <laughs> He's very Texas. Does that make any sense? Uh, it, it feels very in character. Like, OK, all right, uh, let me get my hat back on. We got to get back in the game. Yeah. So he, he puts his hat back on, and then he gets gunned down. And I, I want to ask you about this. Okay, so his his last line, because she she yells, you know, I got you, uh, you know, or, or whatever. I'm not scared of you anymore. And his, his chuckle and laugh and his line of, well, 
if I see him, I'll make sure he gets the message. Yeah. It's and, it's, it's, and that's it's, how the it's, film ends. Do you think she knew? Do you think she thought it was Marty again? Yeah, I, I absolutely think she was. She thought it was Marty. Absolutely. Because remember, to that point, she doesn't even know Marty's dead. She's she's you know she thinks he's the one calling up the house and hanging up. Because at one point, you know, Ray's, oh, that's right. you know, Ray's like, who's that? On? She's like, you know, oh, it's just Marty calling up on me again. And Ray lets out another one of those little chuckles. And uh, I think at, at, during that scene, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go then because, you know, uh, you're playing this game with me. But yeah, no, I think she thought Marty was alive the entire time, uh, okay. which is what makes the end of that movie so absolutely perfect. You know, that it's just such an odd scene. The very last thing you see in this movie is what the last thing uh, Emmett Walsh sees, which is a drip coming yes. off of the bottom of the sink. What an odd which, choice. Which is a really odd choice, and, and I don't know if that would be the last thing I would want to see. I mean, I don't mind it being the last thing that Emmett Walsh sees in that movie, because he was so horrible, but... Uh, well, it kind of it kind of goes to Marty's line earlier about, you know, him being making a reference to him being a bug, you know, that if I need to find you, I know what rock you're hiding under. And here he's dying under a sink like a cockroach. Yeah. Well, if you cut my head off, you know, <laughs> yeah, because he yeah, because he talks about how they used to cut the heads off of bad messengers and stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I can always crawl around without it. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> now, did you know that there's a remake of this film? Oh, no. Is there? There is a Chinese remake that was done in 2009 called A Woman, a Gun, and a Noodle Shop. <laughs> All, right. All right. It's not bad. Is it good? Okay. All yeah. right. I mean, it's it's a foreign film. I, I mean, it is a Chinese culture film, so it is this film adapted into Chinese culture. It's not wow. fantastic, but it's not bad. Huh. Okay. No, I did, I did not know that. Huh. Okay, I obviously have to check that out then. So you've learned two things today. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, I know you know me in remakes. Uh, uh, sometimes I I just don't get it, but if, I could if see them was, in this one. If it was an American filmmaker remaking it, I would have a problem with it. But I I liked it for the fact that it was uh, it was a cultural remake as well as a, a film remake. Sure. Sure. No, I mean. I'm going to have to check it out now just on the sheer basis that it's, you know, Chinese blood simple. That's yeah. That, that doesn't sound all that bad, honestly. All right, man. Yeah, anything else you want to highlight about blood simple before we move into the end credits here? Uh, one interesting thing that I found out is this is, this came out on criterion. Yes. Uh, it's actually, they, they say it's like the director's final version. And yeah. most directors will add stuff to the film. The Coen's actually, reduced the running time on this yes yeah uh, and it, up. it was a little jarring because a lot of the dialogue that i remembered from watching it is gone so like uh, there, there's a scene uh where uh dan hedaya is getting out of his uh get out of detective's volkswagen and he's telling him there's an incinerator behind my place you know make sure you know you get rid of the bodies and he leaves and i remember in the the version i saw you know growing up and and for years the detective, like, waits till he takes a few steps, and he says, my God, you are disgusting. And scenes like that are gone. Uh, and I was just surprised, because most of the time, when you get a Criterion on, you get a director's cut, they want to add all these scenes. You know, it's got 27 minutes of new footage. Uh, you know, my Criterion Silence of the Lambs, I think they added, like, half an hour to it. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, it had been a while since I had seen one where they actually tightened the film up. 
Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, we had an early one, and I'm trying to remember what movie it was that we did that I did for the podcast, where the director basically said the theatrical cut is my preferred cut. They wanted the studio wanted me to do a director's cut, but this is the version I prefer. And I don't oh, remember which movie it was, but so because I do try to take that into account when I'm watching these movies. I did not watch the director's cut for this. I watched the one that I had on Blu-ray. So, oh, gotcha. Well, the only other one I've got on this, I, I'm gonna is on VHS. So. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I still, you still have, a, have a VCR. I do. Uh, from my blockbuster time when we switched, to, uh, this is going to date me for everybody, but when we switched over from VHS to DVDs, because that was a new thing, VHS tapes, they wanted, they were like, oh, we're getting rid of them for nickels. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed literally every movie that I could get my hands on. Uh, I bought like a wall of movies, like a hundred movies for like, I don't know, it was like 20 bucks. Uh, <laughs> and I've, sw- I've slowly been replacing them. But I still have, like, I don't know, you know, 40, 50 VHS tapes still uh, of of ones that are either, like, Blood Simple, where I found out, oh, hey, look what they did with that. Well, don't ever get rid of this. Um, I've got, you know, like, the original Star Wars cuts, stuff like that, uh, that uh, luckily I still have a VHS player that works, so. Yeah, I, I, I do, too. I, I don't have it connected, but I still have one that works, so I, I'm, I'm there with you. <laughs> I think we're the only two people I know alive that still have a VHS player. Maybe maybe there's some listeners that still do. We can we can hope that it's not just the two of us. <laughs> uh, I get looks at work sometimes. I'll be like, yeah, I just watched this on tape. And they're like, you mean DVD? And I'm like, no, literally on tape. That was... Uh, a- <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, man. First up, we've got The Algorithm Says. Uh, these are movies that were recommended by various algorithms because you liked Blood Simple. So this is kind of a lightning round of responses. What do you think about these movies? Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you not see how they're connected? That sort of thing. All right. All right. All right. Uh, Midnight Run. Oh, I like Midnight Run. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. Yeah, I had to include it because we did an episode on it already. So I just had to throw that little plug in. <laughs> I, I like that. OK. All right. Angel Heart. Angel Heart. Haven't seen that. Yeah, and I uh, I had it pulled up to where I could reference it, and now I'm trying to see if I still have it up. Um, oh, there was, I have not seen that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what the lightning round often turns into. So, yeah, it's um, uh, Mickey Rourke, Robert De Niro, Lisa Bonet. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all right. Um, the Pledge. Uh, that's a Jack Nicholson one? Yes. Um... I like the pledge. Um, I remember being a lot slower than uh, Blood Simple. Uh, I mean, I, I guess they're kind of film noirs. Yeah. I can kind of they both in you know. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I'd say I like the pledge. It's okay. It's Mike. it doesn't have the pacing of uh, Blood Simple at all, but okay. <laughs> all right, Michael Clayton. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think the same thing about that one. I don't think the pacing is anywhere near as good. Oh, uh, what what algorithm are they using? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no idea. <laughs> okay, Michael Clayton would be what I would put necessarily as Blood Simple like, but it's a good movie. Yeah. Well, they're about to get okay. really weird. They always they always start out relatively normal, and then they get really weird. So here we go with Perfect. them starting to get really weird. Okay. Um, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Oh, I I don't know that one. It's. Not that old a film. It's from uh, 2011. It was Elizabeth Olsen's debut uh, movie. No, no. I see. I would have got that completely wrong if that had been a Jeopardy question. I'd have been like, "What are movies from the 70s?" Like, 
you hear that title and you think, you know, that, oh, there's going to be a bunch of guys driving around in big cars. And no, I I didn't know that. Okay. okay. All the right. Dead, the dead don't die. The zombie one they just did? Uh, I think they're vampires, but yeah, it's Jim Jarmusch uh, directed. Yeah, that they're, 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 no, you're right, zombies, yes. Yeah, so it's, the, it's a Bruce Willis, uh, not Bruce Willis. <laughs> Bill Murray. Bill Murray, thank you. Yes. Uh, I don't see how that's related at all. Um, I mean, one has Iggy Pop as a zombie. <laughs> like, uh, the other one's got Francis McDormand. I, I don't know. I don't know where they're, I don't know how they're getting that. My guess is Blood Simple is considered by many to be like the best independent film that was ever made. And a lot of these are independent films. Okay. Okay. So All right. Three more. Um, that, that, was a good one. that one's throwing me more than the Olsen one because I haven't seen that one. So. <laughs> All right. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Uh, a fantastic movie. The pacing on it is a lot slower. Uh, no, I don't see the connection there at all, though. They're, one's a Western uh, that's got a fantastic Casey Affleck performance, but uh, I'm not sure where they're getting Blood Simple from that. But uh, for anybody who hasn't seen Outlaw Robert Ford, you should. It's good. Okay, I have not seen it. Solid. It, if you like Westerns, it's good. If you like uh, historical biographies, it's good. Okay. The Thing. The <laughs> Thing? <laughs> ah. I can't agree with them on The Thing. I love The Thing. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I've got the board game. I've got a poster. Uh, I mean, they both have blood. Um, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure how that worked in. It's, uh, yeah. No, I don't, I don't know. But you should watch The Thing. If you haven't seen The Thing, you know, yeah. immediately find a copy of The Thing. Find it on, on whatever Hulu, Netflix. Find it. Watch it. Uh, you will love it. It's it's uh, it's it's probably one of my top ten favorite horror movies of all time. All right, last one that's also going to break your brain: Scanners. Scanners. Oh my god. Um, I mean that's a little closer to Cronenberg's. A little closer to the Coen Brothers than the Thing, I would think. Uh, <laughs> I think it's speaking directors. It's directors whose last names end in C. That's Cronenberg, uh, <laughs> Carpenter, Cohen. Uh, I mean. Scanners is a really, uh, it's a fun movie. Uh, I mean, the special effects at the time, there's a guy whose head explodes. Uh, it's Michael Ironside. If you like Michael Ironside, this is the movie for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I love Scanners, but I wouldn't think it's anything like Blood Simple, no. But again, uh, if you've never seen Scanners, uh, go, to your, go to your Netflix or your Hulu uh, and, and have that come on right after the thing. And you'll have a, a really fun evening that you shouldn't eat spaghetti during. <laughs> All right, man, we always end with the pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Mm. All right, you ready? I'm going to do my best, I hope. All right. Uh, number one, the original video release of Blood Simple didn't have the rights to use Same Old Song by the Four Tops and had to replace it with what song instead? A, Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. B, Sweet Dreams by Patsy Cline. C, I'm a Believer by Neil Diamond. Or D, Man of Constant Sorrow by the Soggy Bottom Boys. It is C. It is. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believer, which is a weird choice. And especially since that was one of your first statements about the movie is you those how it's linked to that song. The fact that they had yeah. to change it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, if you watch the Criterion one, they've they've switched the songs back out with, I guess, because uh, I'm a believer is not in it now. 
Yeah, no, it was just for the first home video release. They've gotten it fixed since so almost any DVD version out there is is the proper version. Yes. Number two, the title of the film is derived from a Dashiell Hammett novel, Red Harvest, describing the addled, fearful mindset of people after prolonged immersion in violent situations. Later, the Coens would make a loose adaptation of that same novel as what film? A, Miller's Crossing, B, Barton Fink, C, The Man Who Wasn't There, or D, Intolerable Cruelty? Ooh, uh, boy, I'm going to go with my, uh, one of my favorites. I'm just going to guess it because it's my favorite Coen Brothers film, Miller's Crossing. Yep, absolutely. I knew you would get that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, number three, as would become rather typical of the Coens, they used friends and collaborators in various roles in their movie and Blood Simple was no different. Director Barry Sonnenfeld, who also appears in a voice role in Barton Fink, provide what vocalization for Blood Simple? A, the radio preacher as Ray drives with Marty's corpse. B, the radio announcer in the first scene. C, vomiting sounds when Marty sees the photos. Or D, cat calls as the stripper takes the stage. Oh, boy. Um, I'm going to have to take a guess on this one, too. Is he the preacher on the radio? He is not. He is the vomiting <laughs> sounds when Marty sees the photos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. And last one. Speaking of collaborators, the Coens sold the movie by going door to door to potential investors and showing them a homemade trailer of Marty crawling down the road, bloodied and broken. The trailer is very similar to how it appears in the final film, except Marty is played by who? Ooh. A, Steve Buscemi, B, Barry Sonnenfeld, C, Sam Raimi, or D, Bruce Campbell. I'm going to, wow, I didn't know it was played by somebody else for the trailer. We'll go with, uh, because he's also a Coen Brothers person, we're going to go with Steve Buscemi. No, it's Bruce Campbell, believe it or not. Campbell? Holy cow. Okay. I mean, yeah. I love Bruce Campbell. I didn't know that he did that. Yeah, I I don't know that there's footage of it anywhere. I'd, I'd be in, I need to look it for that. But yeah, the original trailer that they made to try and get investors involved was just that shot of Marty going down the road to try and pique people's interests. And and when I met Bruce Campbell, I wish I had known that because I would have been like, I loved you from the trailer to Blood Simple. <laughs> the the one time I got to interview him, he he didn't seem very interested in a lot of uh, uh, clowning around. So I don't know how he would have taken to that. Uh, I mean, uh, at the con, uh, I guess, I, you know, at, at the con, he seemed super friendly and, uh, you know, he was almost playing Ash. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> All right, man. Hmm. I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation uh, for yeah. a great movie, and it's totally worth checking out if you if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah. Let's Absolutely. let's not make it another decade before we chat again. OK. No, no, no. I, I'd love to be back unless it's, you know, hopefully this isn't your lowest rated show or and, <laughs> uh, like Who's this guy. It's just some guy he knows. It's not a not a film critic of any kind. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be back. That'd be fantastic. I uh, will definitely do that. All right, man. Take care. What do you say? So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media, share your thoughts about Blood Simple, or maybe tell me a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook, or at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, which brings our first Disney animated film along with an old woman you might describe as scary beyond all reason. 
This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and deep thanks to Chris Eklund for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other. <laughs>